Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. My name is Jason. We have a very special guest today. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Warwick Powell is a geopolitical analyst and media commentator and author whose most recent book is entitled China, Trust, and Digital Supply Chains, Dynamics of a Zero Trust World, published by Rutledge, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, in 2023. Professor Powell worked with former Australian Prime Minister Rudd before taking on the role of advisor to the Minister for Mines and Energy. He moved from government to private industry in 1996 and founded an economics and statistics research company. I love statistics. He is the chairman of Smart Trade Networks. He is also adjunct professor at various universities where he teaches innovation and creativity, regional economic development, and blockchain technology. Welcome to The Bridge, Professor Powell. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's really exciting to be here. So you used to work in government, and if I understand correctly, you left the government to move into the private industry, and you do statistics. Can you tell us how that change came about? It was kind of enforced, really. Um, I, I was actually working in academia before I went into government as a young, aspiring mm. research academic who was... Um, trying to complete a doctorate and I was marking exam papers late one night at about mm. 2 a.m. or something you know with that incandescent light hovering over the the handwritten exam papers <laughs> and I thought to myself mm. this is not for me I don't want to be marking papers mm. for the rest of my life and at that time I'd been offered a role in the as a research um, mm -hmm. officer for Kevin Rudd who became Australia's Prime Minister and so I followed up on the contacts that uh, that the offer had come through previously, and I'd said no to the to the job a couple of times, and um, and to see if the job was still available, and it was. And so a week later, I was no longer in academia, and I was working mm. um, for Kevin in the Queensland government, and I um and I did that for a couple of years, and ended up in the Minister for Mines and Energy office as a as an advisor on both the mining sector and the energy sector and eventually went back into the premier's department there was a change of government i stayed in the government for another oh, six or seven months and uh and there was a restructure in the government and i was offered uh, uh, what they called a ver a voluntary early retirement mm. package at the ripe old age of 25 or 26 <laughs> wow. and so i so, so so i took the took the package and uh and you know went off to do something else so that's how i ended up in the private sector it's really interesting um you know when i think uh, maybe this is ageism talking when i think of blockchain technology i think of teenagers and people who are like 21 years old how did you end up in blockchain technology yeah look you're right about the the age thing though because there are a hell of a lot of young people who are in the blockchain space mm. i stumbled into blockchain technology around 2015 or thereabouts when mm. the ethereum uh mainnet the ethereum network was was first launched and it was something that i was interested in largely because at that time i had some colleagues in the financial services industry who were constantly telling me about this thing called bitcoin mm -hmm. so i was curious just about what on earth that was and i was also involved in some supply chains and cross-border trade where product authentication and cross-border mm. payments were problems 
And usually those two things were dealt with by very different kinds of people. So the mm -hmm. payment stuff was dealt with by bankers and people who often financial instruments like um, bridging loans or, or letters of credit or whatever they were. Mm -hmm. And the authentication issues were usually dealt with by regulators and customs officials and inspectors and things like that. And dawned on me that in fact those two issues were two sides of the same coin and mm. the promise of smart contracts deployed on on blockchains or distributed ledgers seemed like a way of solving these two problems in one go which is mm. um, how i got into blockchains back in uh 2016 or thereabouts wow so th that sounds extremely complicated. So your book, could you tell us about your book? Because your contention is that, that blockchain technology isn't about trust. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, look, trust is a very funny word, right? Um, the English language has a lot of words which often have many different kinds of meanings depending on their context. And mm. trust is thrown around a lot without people actually thinking about what is it that makes a particular relationship or dynamic trust and not something else, right? Mm. So what is it that's unique to this thing that we call trust? And, and therefore, as a result, what isn't trust? Now, in, so that's one, one set of questions. The other one is that in information technology, the word trust is at best a five-letter word. At worst, it's actually a dirty word. Mm. And it's because the idea of trust in this information system context is a system whose integrity is susceptible to the whims of mm. single or small numbers of actors. In other words, you have to place a lot of trust mm -hmm. in the behaviours of single or small numbers of actors for the system to have integrity. And therefore, that's bad. And so the aim of uh, information system design to minimise the risks associated with trust is not to create systems which you can't trust, but it's to create trustless systems or zero trust systems and distributed ledgers is actually really about creating systems that are dependable but are not susceptible to the trust problems of either individual actors or small numbers of actors being able to undermine system integrity through bad behavior and so for me distributed ledgers and blockchains is actually about creating zero trust systems as opposed to creating systems in which uh, trust is a fundamental part. And by creating zero trust systems, what we're doing is creating an information environment that we can collectively depend upon, mm -hmm. knowing that there are no, no single points of integrity, failure, risk. Mm -hmm. That's that's the starting point, I guess, of my journey, if you will, on how this question of distributed ledgers and blockchains works in supply chain contexts. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. One thing that you dabble in is de-dollarization. I understand uh, you've written quite a bit about this. Before we get to that specifically, I was wondering if you could talk about uh, China's digital currency a little bit and outline, because China didn't get rid of blockchain technology. They transformed it into something that is, is more controlled by uh, the banking industry and by the state. Could you describe to us how blockchain technology works as a digital currency in China? Yeah, look, the Chinese digital currency, the ERMB or the digital yuan 
um, or you know the central bank digital currency is quite a distinct piece of technology and it doesn't work on a public network in the way that things like um, the mainstream uh, western mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies do uh, it works on a network which is in effect um, an authority driven consensus mechanism where the pivotal authority to mint new currency and the and to issue authorities for the minting of currencies is the people's bank of china mm. and the other members of the network that keeps track of the ledger you know mm -hmm. the, the pluses and the minuses from different accounts are the um, the commercial banks mm. so um, so a distributed network exists where there are multiple nodes that collectively maintain the integrity of this ledger um, but it's not one where anybody can become a node operator mm. and it's not one where you can just without permission or anything um, suddenly become a participant so that's the sort of digital currency, mm -hmm. if you will. I mean, isn't that similar to the way that states, most states issue their own currency? Or I guess the Fed is technically not part of the state of the United States. I'm not exactly sure. It's a very uh, complicated relationship. But basically, the government in most countries has the ability to print currency. So one thing about Bitcoin is that like you mentioned, it's a uh, many people printing their own currency, whereas in China, they've reverted, they've taken Bitcoin and turned it back into something that the central government essentially has control over like is normal in paper currency. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, look, uh, the ability for a currency issuer or an authority that issues currencies is an important part of how a nation uh, would generally approach questions of monetary policy. And so it's unsurprising to me, firstly, that uh, the Chinese banking authorities and its regulatory authorities see that it's important the issuance of currency falls within the remit of the People's Bank of China. That's probably the first thing. But it's actually a similar set of arguments that are happening all across the world. And clearly, there's a philosophical point of contention, of course, between those who would see money as something that states are fundamentally responsible for issuing and governing and giving credence to mm -hmm. versus this idea of money as being something that anybody can issue and keep track of. And um, China and its regulators has clearly taken the view. And incidentally, the research work on the digital currency in China began before Ethereum came to life. It certainly emerged after Bitcoin mm. existed, but um, I think the digitalization path in China initially emerged not really because of blockchains, but because of both the need and the opportunity that arose from the experiences of digitalization in the early 2010s, you know, when WeChat Pay and those sorts of things started mm. to come onto the scene. You were also very interested in de-dollarization, as I mentioned, or I guess it's the some of the terminology is multipolarity of uh, currency. There are different terms that are coming out to describe the phenomena of nations around the world incorporating other forms of currency in their international exchange. I sp saw a speech where you were talking about how there are new mediums beyond just like the SWIFT system or you know international banking systems that are coming to uh, fruition in the world today that makes it easier for actors in different nations to conduct business internationally. Could you describe a little bit about some of the uh, forms of exchange that are taking place? Sure. Look, it's probably worth just starting with a, with a very simple description of how 
uh, cross-border uh, payments work. They basically work with central banks of different countries maintaining an account um, with the Bank of International Settlements and settling those accounts through that central ledger. And the way that banks send messages to each other, you know, about payments mm -hmm. um, has been through a um, an information exchange platform with a standard standardized mm -hmm. uh, vocabulary, if you will, um, called SWIFT. Now, SWIFT is an interesting creature because it's actually cooperative owned by a whole bunch of its member banks. Mm -hmm. And it was formed to operate a neutral mm. um, information platform so that all participating members could communicate with each other in a way that uh, they could all understand. So it created a standardised um, information exchange framework and mechanism by which banks could communicate with each other concerning payments. That was, that was all well and good until the mechanisms themselves started to get weaponized. Mm -hmm. And by weaponization, I mean that certain banks were kicked off that information network. So they were no longer able to receive mm -hmm. messages from other banks that um, there were parties on the other side that wanted to undertake transactions with, you know, the parties on the on, on the side of the bank that's just mm -hmm. been kicked off. And so parties who were, uh, you know, in, in country A um, that has now been kicked off the SWIFT system had to have ways of of transacting with parties in, say, country B, mm. um, who might still be on SWIFT, but they've got to be able to communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. So they had to find alternative ways. And a number of alternative communication platforms have emerged, um, one developed by the Chinese, um, SIPs, and one developed by the Russians. And the aim is just to enable banks to exchange messages with each other. Now, that's been the sort of, in a sense, the first generation, if you will, of uh, post-weaponization, bank-to-bank communications. I think we're going to see... Out of necessity. Out of necessity. And some of it was about risk, of course. So you've got to you know, create alternative channels in the event that the one that you normally use is no longer available to you for one reason or another. And, of course, the reasons mm -hmm. now to have alternative channels are growing. Um, as a as a small number of countries are increasingly using their ability to exercise influence over the bank to bank communications network and the payment channels to restrict uh, the ability of entities in different countries from it mm -hmm. transacting with each other. Well, there seems to be a lot of uh, nations that are trading in alternative currencies to the dollar now. So I think China's trading with Saudi Arabia as a new central or African-based bank, Africa XM Bank, which is similar to China's XM Bank, and they want to trade and they're working towards being able to trade in uh, African currencies. Is this feasible that most of the countries in the world begin to hold more than 10 currencies to trade with different partners? Well, uh, well the short answer is yes, um, because it's not the first time that the world has conducted trade in this way. So historically, trade has been undertaken by many nations using many means of um, payments. So I think that that's the first thing. The second thing is, is digitalization actually makes the settlement of accounts a hell of a lot easier than would have been the case in the past, mm. um, quicker and cheaper. And of course, the design of the monetary system that enables national currencies to be used as the payments instrument is possible if you have a, a non-national, what they call a numeraire, which is the, the standard unit of account that all 
other national currencies relate to. And it was, in fact, hmm. uh, a proposal made in the 1940s by uh, British economist John Maynard Keynes in preparations mm -hmm. for a post-war financial world. To create a, a international currency that's purposes to be a currency for international trade only. For international trade. And it was a currency that would only be held by the central banks of participating nations. So it wasn't a currency that... Um, you or I could hold, we would continue to do our business in our national currencies, but the cross-border settlements were conducted uh, through the numeraire, um, which would be held in accounts um, with the with what was the um, the International Settlement Union that was proposed at the time. That's not what happened, of course, in the post-war Bret Wood settlement, but that design concept is certainly um, a feasible one to be considered as the new multipolar currency environment emerges. There have been rumblings that BRICS wants to create its own currency or that it wants to trade in a new uh, fashion and that that might be coming in the next couple of months. Do you think that that is a numeray? Look, I think it could be. Um, I haven't seen a lot of details on design parameters of this so-called BRICS currency. There's certainly a lot of talk about um, it being backed by a basket of currencies or backed mm. by um, commodities and those sorts of things. Um, but certainly the idea of it, you know, for something to function as a numeraire, it does need a grounding in the relative productivity, if you will, of the different nations and the and the ways in which that productivity and relative wealth is measured. So it wouldn't surprise me if BRICS nations are contemplating something like a non-national numeraire for the purposes of cross-border settlements, hmm. in some ways inspired by the work of Keynes in the early 1940s, though, of course, taking advantage of digital technologies which weren't available back then. The other reason why I wouldn't be surprised if these uh, discussions weren't happening is that, in fact, Keynes's numeraire, um, which he called the Bancor, subject to a lot of lively discussion uh, inside the People's Bank of China during the latter half of the 2010s okay. um, as uh, internal policy discussions and debates were taking place about what, a, what an alternative global um, settlement system might look like. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly uh, a lot of thinking and a lot of consideration already being given to the design of a system in which no single national currency can dominate. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. Obviously, there are a lot of um, issues that, say, the United States, because it is issuing the dollar, the Fed is issuing the dollar, might deal with. What are some of the basic consequences for the U.S. dollar or for the U.S. economy if de-dollarization progresses and gets to a much larger inflection point? Yeah, look, um, why do other nations hold U.S. dollars? is the fundamental question. And other nations hold US dollars uh, because they use them to buy things made um, in America and they use them to settle debts that are issued um, by institutions denominated in US dollars. They're the two main reasons why other nations hold US dollars. The ability for uh, the US, in a sense, to uh, feed the global market with US dollar liquidity um, also means that the US runs a persistent deficit 
borrowing money from the rest of the world. And, um, and that's has provided the US with the ability, in effect, to live beyond its means. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also provided the US with the uh, financial resources to finance a whole raft of things that it would otherwise not be able to finance. So, for instance, mm-hmm. according to Jeffrey Sachs, a good half of the uh, US public debt that has been incurred in the last 20 years has actually gone towards funding um, American mm-hmm. military expenditures. Um, you know, So in many ways, this move away from a dollar-dominated mm-hmm. world in which the US is able to uh, borrow money from the rest of the world mm-hmm. by issuing uh, US dollar-denominated treasuries uh, will also ultimately, well, I think it'll do two things. One is is that it will affect uh, material living standards in the short term mm. in North America. That's one. But the second thing it will do is that it will it will catalyze a national debate about national priorities mm. and reduce the ability of the U.S. Treasury to continue funding um, the American war machine, basically. You know, you worked in the Australian government at a time that perhaps was the height of Sino-Australian relations under Rudd. Could you walk us through the developments which have led to today's challenge? From Australia's point of view? Yeah, from Australia's point of view. Yeah, look, it's um, this last 10 years has, or last 12 years perhaps, has seen a number of interesting facets emerge, I guess, in terms of the Australia-China relationship. The Australia-China relationship really took off in the mid-site 19th. 1970s, when Australia recognised China or the People's Republic of China as the uh, legitimate government of all of China, and um, and from then on, uh, with a few uh, you know periodic hiccups, it has uh, continued to flourish. the uh, The economic relationship, in particular, has flourished significantly over the last 20 years mm-hmm. with China becoming Australia's Yeah, I've, I've sat in Beijing drinking Australian <laughs> wine more than once. Yeah, look it's um of course Australian wine and beef and those things um are things that day-to-day consumers experience. Um but part of the trading relationship um, lies in Australia's ability to export high-grade iron ore and um high-grade mm-hmm. um particularly thermal coal, but also some coking coal as well for um, steel production and and some other raw materials, mm-hmm. but predominantly... Un- and wheat. It was wheat as a major export of Australia to the China. Is that not correct? Yeah. yeah milk as absolutely. well. Absolutely. So wheat yeah. and wool. There are a lot of things. Milk. Yeah. So Australia exports natural resources, and it also buys a lot of intermediate goods and end consumer goods from China, you know, from, Chinese, from China's manufacturing um, capabilities. So the trade relationship has actually continued to grow year on year, and it has again reached records. Now, it has done that despite the fact that the uh, relationship between the two capitals has uh, not always been very good. And in fact, in recent years, uh, it has been quite poor. Um, And even in spite of all of that, trade has continued. And there's some interesting economic literature on this, which actually suggests that good diplomatic relationships is actually not a precondition at all to successful economic mm. relationships. So, um, so there's so so the relationship, I guess, between uh, good good diplomatic relationships and good economic relationships is not straightforward. I think that's probably the more important mm. point to make. It's not that bad um, diplomatic relationships lead to good economic relationships is probably. Um, pushing the cause effect arrow a little bit hard. 
And I say that because it's also clear that China's expanding relationships through initiatives like the BRI, which has involved a significant diplomatic effort as well as economic effort, has Mm -hmm. led to uh, trading benefits for participant countries and investment and economic development benefits for participating countries that are above average. Mm -hmm. In other words, those additional relationships cultivated through BRI has delivered outlier benefits to the participants. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is that the economic relationship between Australia and China has actually improved uh, year on year consistently, despite the fact that uh, the diplomatic relationships have uh, been a little bit rocky of late. I think that the, the economic relationships are likely to continue to be reasonably solid for the foreseeable future. And that's largely because the two economies are very complementary. The risk to all of that ultimately is the extent to which uh, geopolitical considerations may ultimately cause the economic relationships to be severed, right? So a souring of the atmosphere won't necessarily cause the economic relationship to, uh, to suffer. Policy imposed restraints and constraints Um, can ultimately cause significant problems. So, for instance, if for whatever geopolitical reasons, Australia's uh, exports of, you know, commodity X um, is prohibited, um, then that's obviously going to impact on the economic relationships. The other thing too, I think it's fair to say, is that by and large, from Beijing's point of view at least, the geopolitical issues uh, are largely outside of Australia's direct remit. I think it is uh, reasonably widely understood that on those sorts of issues, Australia largely takes its writing instructions from Washington and has for many decades aligned its foreign policy posture with the imperatives of uh, what is in effect American hegemony. And uh, there was a book uh, by University of New South Wales or University of Sydney professor Clinton Fernandez, who in effect described Australia as a sub-imperial power. In other words, Australia identified its interests as being best served with a continuation of American primacy in Asia, and therefore it conducted itself in a way that would seek to support and preserve American primacy in Asia. That's the context, Jason. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I'm actually having, this is the first time I've thought of divorcing economics and politics in this way. So it's a new paradigm for me in geopolitical analysis. But I mean, uh, Australia and China are both members of the RCEP, which is the world's largest trading bloc and includes most of Southeast Asia, I think, except Papua New Guinea, includes Japan, South Korea and New Zealand. So Australia and China are both in this. And this does allow lowering of tariffs and uh, increases the probability of growing trade between China and Australia. But where I'm having a difficult time understanding the context that you've outlined is you're talking 
talking about the severance of certain kinds of imports and exports, but isn't that what has happened in the in some with some tariffs and some sanctions? And does the RCEP uh, account for that and facilitate increased trade between these two global partners? Yeah, look, I think the RCEP is a fantastic example of the evolution of a distinctly Asian transnational architecture. So RCEP was an initiative of the ASEAN group of countries, the 10 Southeast Asian nations. Mm -hmm. And through the efforts of ASEAN over about eight years, they uh, successfully enlisted China, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, and until the last minute, India to be uh, members of this free trade environment. Now, India pulled out at the last minute, Mm. but the other five non-ASEAN nations have signed up. And it is, as you say, the largest free trade agreement um, in the world today. And it is an example of how Asian nations are able to forge institutions that support meaningful trans-regional interactions that enable businesses to do what they do, enables value to flow where it needs to flow, and creates an environment where participating nations can identify common interests upon which they can use to build other kinds of sustainable, peaceful development frameworks, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I think the RCEP and ASEAN primacy within the Asia region is not only a reality, but it also speaks to the existence already today of an emerging multipolarity in Asia. Now, interestingly, Australia actually recognises that US primacy no longer exists Hmm. and that Asia is characterised as a region of multipolarity. Now, having accepted that, of course, the question is, is how does it navigate its role and its position within that environment? And some recent commentary from people like Hugh White and others have identified a continued contradiction, if you will, between a foreign policy and a trade policy that recognises Asian multipolarity as a reality today on the one hand, and a defence security policy posture that continues to prioritise the imperatives of sub-imperial power interests. In other words, that seeks to maintain or to rebuild American primacy in the region. Now, these two Mm. views of the world, if you will, are actually not compatible. Mm. And RCEP embodies, in a sense, the absence of compatibility between these two dimensions of Australian public policy in the region. Wow. Okay. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit towards Africa. I saw you uh, were part of a conversation. You were discussing the incredible growth potential of Africa and of China's role there in the BRI infrastructure development and the future of imports and exports from Africa. Now, um, my thinking is with new ports, with new uh, seaports, land ports, whether or not Australia is part of the BRI doesn't really matter like on a grand scale because Australia can still buy and sell things from the same ports that are being developed between Africa and China. So would you say that Australia has a lot of growth potential by uh, working with developing African nations in the context of the, the growing BRI? Mutual benefits in economic development are available to all countries should they uh, seek to 
engage on the basis of creating mutual benefit to look at what the different parties bring to the table, what are their respective resources and capabilities, Hmm. what their respective needs and aspirations are, and through dialogue, mediate a a pathway by which those resources can be harnessed. So, you know, a country like Australia has a well-educated population. It has embedded know-how and experience, particularly in areas such as natural resources. It's a big continent with very few people, so it has had to deal with the challenges of distance in the delivery and maintenance of transport and communications and electrical infrastructure. So it does have a bunch of resources or capacity that it can bring to the table, no doubt about it. Mm. The question is, is how does an Australia seek to um, participate in this new world opportunity? Um, whether it does so as a formal signatory of BRI, as you say, is in many ways immaterial because if you enter into a bilateral relationship with transparent and positive or constructive that is focused on mutual benefit, then I think you've got a good chance of doing something useful and productive. The BRI is is an interesting innovation, if you will, in transnational relationships because Mm -hmm. it is very much focused on the idea of enabling uh, what I call value flows to happen. So economic development is really about enabling value to Mm -hmm. flow as if the economic system is a living body, right? So rather than viewing as a zero-sum proposition where, you know, the the extractor gains more than the Mm -hmm. supplier country, what we're trying to do through sustainable economic development is create the mechanisms by which value flows uh, through the economic body, which involves all of these participants, all these nodes and countries, Mm -hmm. communities and businesses, and that these flows take place in an as efficient mm-hmm. and as timely a manner as possible. And once you can get flow happening, uh, then you're starting to create mm-hmm. the foundations for wealth creation. And I think that that's really the foundations of the BRI. It's not just about you know building bridges and roads and all of that, but fundamentally it's a design philosophy that says mutually beneficial economic development when the system enables the flow of capital and value and money and know-how and utility to take place quickly and efficiently. You know, I'm very interested in the BRI, so I want to continue with this a little bit more. I want to do this in a kind of uh, adversarial fashion. These are not my arguments, but some people say that uh, some of the projects that are being developed uh, have the of the desired outcome by China to create uh, indebtedness. What would you say to those arguments? Well, um, and how is that different to the ways in which um, the colonial powers of uh, the transatlantic have engaged with developing countries over the last 300 years? Because if you want a good case study of exploitative economic relationships, then the 300 years of or 400 years of Hmm. colonialism is probably a good place to start. The real issue here is actually about how the configuration is different. Mm -hmm. Um, There is, of course, a financier that provides finance to enable things to happen and for things to be built. And you've got to remember these things that are being built are useful Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. A seaport. 
yeah. I seem to recall one or more African leaders say, you know, whenever America comes to town, they give us a lecture about China. Whenever China comes to town, they build a hospital or a road. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, and I think that there's an important lesson in that, in that mm. the legacy that's left is a legacy that you can't just pack up and take away. Um, it's a legacy of lasting infrastructure mm-hmm. that can be utilised by, you know, local communities and businesses and, and organisations. Absolutely. So that's the first thing I would say to, to that. The second thing related to that is this proposition that the financial relationship uh, is, is what uh, people disparagingly call debt diplomacy. Mm. Research out of um, the US uh, led by a team uh, under Professor Deborah Brodigan shows John Hopkins University, SAIS. It shows very clearly, shows very, very clearly that is exactly not what these creditor-debtor relationships are. I've, I have read that article in The Atlantic like 20 times. Have you? <laughs> to, get, to prepare for arguments exactly like this one, yeah. Um, and the academic literature. So if somebody was really interested, there's probably a good 20 peer-reviewed papers from her and her team mm. that you can find under um, Google Scholar mm-hmm. going into detailed case studies on all of these things. Not only does it show that it's not debt-trap diplomacy, um, it also shows that in the scheme of debt relationships or lending to developing countries, lending from Chinese banks remains relatively small compared to the loans provided by private lenders. IMF. And the IMF. Yeah. Paris Club, Club of Rome. That's right. So I yeah. think it's important to keep yeah. things in perspective, number one. Well, I mean, I'd like to add to that. As long as we're, I would say a third argument is also on the John Hopkins website for SAIS, and that is uh, Kerry, is that um, China has actually forgiven like tens of billions of dollars from the year 2000 to now is documented on their website. And it's just like yeah. every couple of weeks, China's just forgiving debt, forgiving debt. China has yet to foreclose it, whatever that would look like on any BRI project anywhere in the world. So yeah, that argument of debt trap diplomacy falls apart pretty quickly when you look at the details. Yeah. And look, I think that this goes to actually that there's a there's actually a very fundamental philosophical ethos here and that goes to the idea that i described earlier which is this issue of flow okay mm. so um you know there's a long tradition within sort of chinese philosophy um about uh, movement and flow because of of, the, of a healthy organism you know whether it's the planet the earth or or a human body or whatever mm-hmm. and if you foreclose on a, on mm-hmm. a debt then you have forever um, prohibited the ability for things to flow. Mm. And debt is in many regards just a function of value flow through time, okay? So if I've denominated debt of, you know, of say a million something or another, and uh, we'd agreed that you would repay that million somethings back within 10 years, but you don't manage to do that, what if it took you 15 mm-hmm. years to pay it? What What's the big deal, right? Yeah. Uh, from the point of view... So restructuring alone is more, yeah, is in everyone's benefit. So you refinance because ultimately the flow is actually where economic development and growth happens, mm. not by some arbitrary timeline that says, well, you know, too bad, um, the the hour has come and um, and you've missed a payment. Mm. The point of that, the whole point of lending funds to build this infrastructure was to enable flow. That was the point, mm. right? It wasn't to just get principal and interest at a defined period in time. Mm -hmm. It was to enable flow. And once you bring that Mm -hmm. attitude to the table, then you've got a fundamentally different way of thinking about finance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very insightful. 
I watched a conversation that you had with Hussein Askari of the Schiller Institute, and uh, you're an expert in digital communication, block technology, and so forth. And you uh, prefaced a question for him about physical connectivity by mentioning the digital products the African content will likely be consuming in the years and decades to come. Could you elaborate on what kinds of digital products you think that African consumers will be will be purchasing, buying, uh, participating with? Yeah, look, let's break it up into sort of three main parts. Um, one is at a, at a, a household consumer level. Uh, one is at an aggregated system level, if you will. And the other one is, um, I guess we can call it at an industrial level. Mm. At a household level, I think it's going to, well, I think it is increasingly obvious that um, smartphones, particularly low-cost smartphones, just becoming part of life. I think we're also going to start to see mm -hmm. um, the uh, households becoming smarter in the ways that smartphones integrate with other technologies such as sensors, electricity management systems and things like that, particularly mm -hmm. if the country exists in an environment where the existing electricity distribution network is either poorly developed or which is experiencing significant reliability problems. So in that environment, more and more households will go independent, they will go renewable, they will go distributed, and they will use smart technologies to better manage those resources. So that's at a household level. We'll start to see, um, obviously, the expanded use of smartphones, um, uh, the growth of what I guess you'd loose, loosely call smart homes, and um, and in due course also the increased use of electric vehicles, which are increasingly affordable. So that's at the household level. At the sort of the big macro level, if you will, or you know the the, the super highway level, I think we're going to see the ongoing rollout of undersea cables, which will connect the African continent to um, global data networks. We're going to see the rollout of 5G and, uh, and 4G mobile um, telephony infrastructure that will enable the transportation of, um, of data um, and large amounts of data at, in cost-effective ways. So we're going to start to see that. I think we're also going to see the proliferation of data centers, which will enable, obviously, a digitalization of the, of the real economy to take place where large volumes of data will be uh, collected, um, curated, stored, utilized, disseminated, et cetera, et cetera. So that's at that sort of um, public goods level, if you will. And I think the third layer, as I mentioned, is in that industrial application layer where in combination with those two other dimensions, we're going to see the uh, progressive digitalization of supply chains themselves and the activities that are undertaken in supply chains, whether they are productive activities, you know, factories making things, um, or distributional activities, you know, moving things from point A to point B. And that kind of digitalization is likely to involve significant implementations of sensors, of course, for want of a better term, AI, um, though in mo most contexts, it'll largely be, you know, big data processing and machine learning, and the ability for data to drive automated production and distribution processes. Huawei, for example, uh, has implemented a smart port project in Tianjin, not far from where you are, um, from memory, about 29 minutes on the fast train uh, from where you are. 
And the Tianjin port now can unload a, a standard uh, container ship uh, in about 45 minutes. That's right. Um, whereas prior to this smart port initiative, it took about eight hours to do the same thing. Mm. Right? So, so you've got this incredible uh, transformation in productivity. And, uh, and so I think that the African continent is capable of fast-tracking the implementation of these kinds of technologies mm. up and down its economic body, if you will, mm-hmm. in large part because it's not encumbered by a bunch of legacy structures and models. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like um, not being encumbered by um, desktop computers. You've just skipped straight to mobile phones. Right, like what happened to a lot of people in China. Correct. Just skip that whole incumbent technology to... Uh, what is really the, the the technology foundations of the fourth industrial revolution, mm-hmm. and that's where I think the the tremendous economic development potential lies in Africa, where it can, by mobilising these capabilities, achieve a level of economic development in a space of time that um, it took other countries, you know, if it took someone 40 years to achieve something <laughs> in the recent past, Africa has the potential to achieve it in 15 years. You know, I was talking with Jeffrey Sachs a few months back, and he we were talking about something similar. And he mentioned one thing that challenges Africa is that it is 50 countries, whereas China is one single body and can take and implement things in a way that is universal from from the central government down. So I'm really hopeful, having heard what you just said, that if the African Union or other intergovernmental bodies can facilitate various members working together on their infrastructure, that they can accomplish a lot. But I think it is really going to depend on uh, you know, really close lockstep diplomacy between partners. Yeah, look, I'd say this. Um, China's economic development experience uh, has also been uneven. It is one country, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it has a significant amount of uh, governance devolution in the design and implementation of specific policies in response to national strategic objectives. Um, so in many ways, the coordination and alignment of initiatives across um, many provinces will, I think, bring some interesting lessons for the coordination and alignment of initiatives uh, on the African continent with multiple countries. Mm-hmm. One of the, the the keys to it all is going to be the uh, the development and adoption of a range of applicable standards, mm-hmm. right, particularly in terms of data infrastructure to enable interoperability and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And by having standards, you're also able to drive a kind of bottoms-up initiatives that can really activate grassroots innovation. So by having, uh, for instance, in an IT space, a bunch of open source standards that local initiative can can develop towards, you're going to unleash potentially a bunch of bottom-up user-driven capabilities that would take a long, long time if it had to come from mm-hmm. sort of a central design house. So standardization, open standards, open source standards will, I think, be part and parcel of an African development story that was actually not available to every other developing country in the post-Second World War II mm. years. Because in that period, as I'm sure you know, most of the standards that were developed, particularly in information technology, were actually proprietary, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those proprietary standards not only delivered um, disproportionate commercial benefits to 
you know, a small number of players over everyone else. Mm -hmm. But it also meant that ecosystems were locked up. Right? And we're now starting to see the emergence of open source ecosystems for the design of semiconductors, for example, for the design of mm. IoT ecosystems, etc., etc. all of which will enable a kind of bottoms-up or localised development to suit local conditions, whilst at the same time being compatible with the operating environment of the greater whole. So it's a bit like having the same rail gauges across a whole nation. Mm -hmm. yeah. right? and, and the same way, and, you know, driving on the same side of the road and, and the same way of describing speed limits and all those sorts of things. Yeah, uh Once we can do that, then there is a a a window or, or an envelope of economic development potential that was not actually available to any other country mm. until now. Wow, the, you you know you've brought up so many topics I want to continue to ask you about, and you are an obvious expert on so many topics, which is why we've covered such a large range. We don't have a lot of time, which really kind of saddens me. I hope we can have you back on the program, but I do want to ask you one last question before we go. You are interested in sustainability and you chair an organization that works on sustainability. Uh, could you outline what you see are as the challenges of sustainability that our global civilization is facing and maybe in the near term, what are some of solutions to some of these issues? Wow. I know it's a huge question we, <laughs> to ask you to squish it, squish it into a couple minutes. <laughs> Given my energy background, you know, my, my instinct would be to talk about energy, but I think most people understand that um, there is a big shift happening in terms of how we deal with energy and decarbonizing the energy production systems of the world. Mm -hmm. There are two areas which I think are also vitally important. And I guess this goes to some of the ways that I think about complex things. And I do that by making them simple, mm -hmm. right? And, and human societies on this particular planet really function when two things work. One is, is that uh, we need to have energy for machines, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, that's how human societies are. And the other thing is, is that we need to have energy for humans. Mm. In other words, we need, you know, to be able to feed ourselves. And to do that effectively, uh, we need to take care of two other things um, and arguably three, but I'll, I'll just mention two. One mm. is, is that we need to make sure that we don't mess up our water mm. and we need to do more to fix our soils. Mm. So um, I think from a sustainability point of view, I would say that two areas of work that uh, deserves a lot of attention is going to be around how we look after our soil and how we tend to it. Mm. Uh, because the truth is, is that most life on earth takes place on the surface, of course, of this planet. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking about terrestrial life, not aquatic life. And mm -hmm. um, within no more than probably about 30 centimetres or one foot of topsoil, mm. right? That's that's the little crust yeah. that we actually live by. And uh, we have done a lot of damage to that very thin crust over the years in the ways that we have exploited it for um, for farming purposes. And, um, and we need to... Mm -hmm take greater care of that thin crust um, because without that, our ability to grow food uh, for the animals that, that live on this earth and for ourselves as human beings is uh, is compromised. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. And I certainly do hope that we can have you back on the show, Professor Warwick Powell. Anytime. And in fact, hopefully next time I'll uh, be able to pop into the studio and, um, Absolutely. and see you all live in <laughs> Beijing. Um, looking forward to it. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please tune in next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.